Hello, everybody. Welcome to 11th Hour. Uh, if you could please take a seat or get back up, I guess, and grab a handout if you haven't yet. The handouts are up at the front table on my left. And also a reminder, again, if you have a cell phone, to please turn it off or silence it. And I will bring the microphone around at the end for questions. Who among us hasn't written a short story that turned out to be a novella or a poem that takes on story form or maybe a novel that a friend adapts for the screen? One of my favorite singer-songwriters, Josh Ritter, sat down to write a song only to realize he had a novel, a debut novel called Bright's Passage. Today, Jim Hainan will discuss what happens when the same content takes on a different form. Jim is the author of several collections of short shorts, The Man Who Kept Cigars in His Cap, You Know What Is Right, The One Room Schoolhouse, and The Boy's House, as well as Ordinary Sins after Theophrastus. He has also published three novels, The Fall of Alice Kay, Cosmos Cody, and William the Nice, and Being Youngest, as well as several collections of poetry and a nonfiction book, 100 Over 100. He has frequently been featured on National Public Radio, reading his stories, and has been awarded National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships in Poetry and Fiction. Please join me in welcoming Jim Hainan. Not among sapiosexuals. I used that word in class yesterday. Nobody knew what it meant. A room full of writers. Does anybody here know what a sapiosexual is? They <laughs> just what? What is it? Yes, uh, sapiosexuals are people who are turned on by intelligence. So you know, I thought, what the heck. Um, it, it started out beautifully with uh, the pronunciation of my name. There are two pronunciations of my name. My dad said Heinen. My mother invariably revised it to Heinen. So when, when I'm introduced as Heinen, I think, you know, that's just fine. Even though my, my dad said Heinen, my mom said Heinen. Um, that confusion, the various versions of pronunciation of people's names among writers, of course, is very confusing because we have... Robert Haas, or is it Haas? It's Robert Haas. Is it Barbara Ross, or is it Bar Barbara Rass? It's Barbara Rass. Is it Rick Bass, or is it Rick, Rick ba Bass, or Rick Bass? It's Rick Bass. And so once you know that all three of those well-known writers are asses, you've got the pronunciation. So, <laughs> so, so don't forget that. Um, same content, different form, and she already said it's, it's not that, that uncommon for us to have tried it. And I, as I was looking over my notes of what I was going to say today, I thought, my God, I sound luxury. And I'm, I'm going to sort of pull back on some of this, uh, why don't you try this, pushing, pushiness of this uh, little talk. Um, when she said to shut off the cell phones, uh, I was put in mind of a wonderful experience that I had here at this very podium about uh, 10 years ago, when I told my wife at home, like, well, I'd be giving a, it was then called an elevenses uh, lecture at 11 o'clock. So as I stood up here, my phone rang. It, was anybody here for that? What I did is I put her on speakerphone. <laughs> 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 and, then, 
because she's a journalist. I said, all right, you're here. This is what I'm talking about. Why don't you open the, the remarks? And then she said, oh, come on, and then she did. It was, it was kind of fun. <laughs> so I reminded her that I was starting again at 11 o'clock, so if she wanted to call, she will be on speakerphone. Um, the poet Montali suggested that the immature writer is obsessed with content and the mature writer is obsessed with form. Uh, in my experience, the content changes significantly when the form is changed. Most of us have heard and probably believe that form and content are one. It seems so obviously true when we say it, but we don't realize the truth of the obvious until we experiment with form and see how content unavoidably follows suit. Uh, I'll share some of my own discoveries in, in my own writing, but also refer to some others. Let me start with this question. All of you take your writing seriously. Maybe some of you even identify yourselves as writers. And if you tell someone you're a writer, or at least somebody who takes writing seriously, you quite often get the follow-up, really, rather <laughs> impressed or amused. And then, what do you write about? Maybe you have a quick answer. Maybe you say, I write about my family. I write character profiles. I write about nature. Not many people are doing that anymore. I write about women's struggles. I write about racism. But you just might say, I don't know what I'm going to write until I start writing. And suppose that is your answer. It tells me that you write to discover your inner life. You write to explore what is meaningful, and you trust your subconscious to send up the message of what to write about. But once you've written quite a bit, I'd wager that an objective reader would be able to generalize about what you write about, about your themes, about your obsessions. An objective reader will recognize that cer certain themes or subjects keep recurring. When I look at just a few significant writers from the past, you can see how what they write about is often summarized in just one phrase or one sentence. You know, Flannery O'Connor, oh, well, she wrote religious themes and southern racial issues, you know, covers half of her work. Raymond Carver, well, he wrote about the complex darkness of ordinary loser types. I think that covers all of him. Margaret Atwood in, writes about the societal power structures that limit women. John Updike wrote about the privilege and self-imposed misery in the wasp yuppie environment. Covered three-fourths of them. Thoreau, nature. Well, call them obsessive con concerns, ones we choose or ones that choose us. Might ask the question, are we doomed to be nothing more than variations on the single theme of, our, of ourselves and our individual concerns and obsessions? Maybe. I would suggest not to desert an obsession. Don't cure yourself from your obsessions. Some of you will quickly recognize the name Alice Siebold. For years, she searched for a form to relieve her from the content of her life. In the 1970s, when she was an 18-year-old freshman at Syracuse, she was beaten and raped. She spent some time at home recovering and returned to Syracuse to study. Walking down a street near campus, she spotted her rapist and he was arrested. At Syracuse, she studied under Tobias Wolf. 
and this is an aside, but it's such a significant aside. Tobias Wolf said what he learned from working with Alice Siebold is not to judge a writer too early. He said she did not distinguish herself very much at all as his student at Syracuse. And it was sort of advice to those of us who teach writing, is to not judge too early in a person's early writing. Um, but she did go on to graduate school in Texas, then spent 10 years in Manhattan working mostly as a waitress. Her search for the right form for her traumatic experience then became poetry, then drugs, then a failed novel. She moved to California in 1995 in her 30s. She applied to graduate school at the University of California, Irvine. And it was there that she decided to try the memoir form. The memoir, anybody read it, called Lucky. It was chosen because one of the Syracuse cops told her she had been lucky not to have been killed, which is what the rapist did to the other victims. It grew out, out of a classroom assignment. Ha, beware of the prompt that may lead you to a whole book. Believe me, it's happened. Lucky was published in 1999, now 17 or 18 years after the violent assault at Syracuse. As many of you know, she returned to the same material again, this time in the form of a novel. She was ready to write the novel being The Lovely Bones. A daring premise novel in which a 14-year-old girl who has been raped and murdered tells her story from heaven published in 2002. I knew a couple of editors who turned it down saying, come on, we're going to have a novel told by a 14-year-old girl from heaven? It sounded too hokey. It was published in 2002, only a few years after the memoir Lucky. It was a book that sold millions of copies and won the American Booksellers Association Book of the Year Award for Adult Fiction in 2003. One reviewer said it was the most successful debut novel since Gone with the Wind. Traumatic experiences like hers demand reworking and perhaps multiple approaches. We have seen the same consequences in writers who were Holocaust survivors, veterans of the wars, and no doubt we'll see similar phenomenon from writers who have survived several tours of duty in the Middle East. But the rewards of reworking the same material in different forms are not dependent upon horrendously painful experiences. The rewards can come from reworking quite ordinary and painless obsessions, even favorite images. We could, for example, look at several poems by Mary Oliver that celebrate flowers and see how her many approaches to the same subject. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about what evidently uh, was an early obsession for me. I started out here as a student in English Renaissance, graduate student in English Renaissance literature. John Milton was my man. And um, I lived in a, a, a little apartment above a garage not far from Iowa City along the Iowa River. And there was a flood back then. And um, the flood left this little yellow dress hanging in a tree. It was just the oddest thing to see about that high off the ground. Uh, needless to say, I would be coming back to that later. But also, in my very first published poem, I realized that I was just starting to realize that my father was not a total jerk. 
and uh, starting to see him as a significant influence on my life. My very first published poem shows one of my early obsessions, and that is with people gaining power in older age. Let me quickly read it. It's called My Father's Still a Farmer. <coughs> My father's still a farmer at 62, wears overalls like they used to, stripes, bronze buttons to light a match on, bib pockets for nails or scribbled notes with cattle prices, still comes from the outhouse with his suspenders buttoned wrong, prefers this accident to belts which give him stomach aches and don't light in the air from the side where you need it on those hot, sultry days. At night in slippers and wool pants, he's only half the man. Makes me want to know about the overalls, something about the overalls. It's when he's in those overalls I've seen his old arms spring like willow limbs to take a sick sow by the ears and set her up, or hay bales leaping shoulder high as if they know he wants them there. I know old cowboys ride good horses and old hunters have good dogs, but farmers never show their age in such dependent ways. This is a special secret, their way of getting on. At night I'm left to wonder at those limp and wrinkled stripes hanging on the porch, the strange and aged look, implicit strength of old and idle men and things waiting to become one. Well, obviously this theme was planted early with me, this admiration, curiosity about the aging, and you see it in, in the example I uh, have there of the great strength. But that obsession showed itself even earlier when I had an impulse after reading a story about a 104-year-old woman in Port Townsend, Washington, where I lived at the time, who had just caught a 17-pound salmon. Talk about a whack on the side of the head as to what can happen in an extreme old age. And I was jogging in the uh, hills around uh, Fort Warden State Park, where maybe some of you have been, and it occurred to me, wouldn't it be cool to write a book about 100 people over 100? You know, one of these wild ideas, which was totally in harmony with my obsession about what could be, what can happen in old age. So on that impulse, I thought, I'm, I'm going to write a book about 100 people over 100. What, what a dangerous impulse. <laughs> and so I went to the Port Townsend Leader office and sat down with a stack of envelopes. And with uh, every, every newspaper has the annual address of of all the newspapers in the country. I figured, well, the New York Times won't help me, but I bet some of these little newspapers were. So with a map in one hand and that open book, I just wrote down the names on, on, on the envelopes, names of the editors and these, these uh, newspapers that just followed a tra trail from down California and through the south and all the way into Florida and back up through the Midwest. And then I went and wrote a press release and then I included a sheet of paper um, just give, giving details of myself so that they wouldn't think I was an insurance salesman who was trying to get his foot in the door to sell <laughs> insurance to old people. And in and, and, and the same day I had that impulse, I, I dropped them in the mail. And within a month I had hundreds of nominations. And then I had to move very quickly. I put a big map up in my office wall. <laughs> where I'd gotten responses, different, different colored pins. And then I would send a follow-up uh, letter, um, again with map in, in hand to see how I could make the trip inexpensively. 
And then they had to give me information about when they were born exactly and how many kids they had and all of that so I wouldn't be sitting down with a hundred-year-old saying, how many kids did you say you have? <laughs> and um, then here came all these nominations and I hit the road. And I tried to take the photographs myself at first, but that was stupid. So I got a good photographer friend and we went around the country traveling like college kids staying in $18 a night motels in Louisiana and eat, eat, getting our food from uh, grocery stores rather than restaurants. And here I make my point, interviewing the centenarians. What happened is they had clear stories. They would remember well things that happened 50 years ago. But what wouldn't, what would happen in the interviews is that they often would forget what they told me a half hour ago. <laughs> why, why are people laughing as if this is a familiar experience? <laughs> and what would happen when somebody would start retelling a story they'd already told me in the interview, it always got more interesting. And, and the, the nephews or grandchildren would say, uh, Grandpa, Grandpa, you, 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 you told them that already. I'd say, don't let, let him tell me about it again. And so I would probe probe the story, and the centenarians would reveal their obsessions. There was one old woman, she was 104 years old, I think, when I interviewed her. Um, she was born in Mabel Taylor, born in 1881. She's telling about an 1885 experience of trying to cross the Missouri River on a wagon train. And um, she talked about how as a little girl she was so afraid because the horses were on this barge and the men were locking the wheels so that they couldn't run back and forth. And she said, but the water, the water that was lapping over the side of the barge, it looked, it looked, it looked just like the pig flesh that we'd butchered the night before. I said, oh, you mean it was white? And she said, no, it was dark, don't you know? Old Muddy. The Missouri was called Old Muddy in 1885. Isn't that cool? And so I kept probing her about that experience, about what it was like and what her real fear was that the horses would drown. And I said, well, have you had horses in your life since then? She said, yes, and she, she started naming all of her horses. It's just a wonderful, wonderful story about how a woman's obsessions kept deepening the story that she was telling me. There was another <laughs> old man from Long Island who talked about um, going around as a boy on Long Island and just digging in the dirt. And he said there were potatoes everywhere. Evidently, Long Island was a great place for growing potatoes. His other obsession was that he made a tractor. He built a tractor, an old steam tractor. And after a half hour, he started repeating that story. And the relatives tried to stop him. I said, no, tell me more about that tractor. And he went on greater and greater and more animated each time. And a wealth of material came out the more I persisted in getting them to retell it. They continually gave me the same content in different form. It was, uh, it was a wonderful experience, a good example um, of giving the same material in different form. And every time they tried, it got better. Well. The examples I've given so far are meant to make a certain point. We all do have obsessions, we all do have subjects that possess and haunt us, and that we'll probably return to again and again. One point I want to drive home is that 
don't try to desert the subjects that seem to be yours whether you want them or not. Here's the lecture part that I was lecturing myself about when I read, read over this this morning. Accept the subject, accept the subject, but explore how differently it can be presented if you try it in different forms. Oh, if you want to. <laughs> I'm not going to be that lecturer. All I'm going to do is tell you how much fun I had when I would revise the same material in different forms. The Yellow Girl, which I think you may have in your hands. And I started to tell you the story of, of where the image came from. It came from the Iowa River long before I started writing poems, but it came back and haunted me. Uh, I'll read it. A young boy plays in the fields around the pond. Often he imagines when days are long with dust and sun that he sees ducks and bullheads swimming there. But he knows the pond is dry. He has been there, pinched the crawdads into dust. He has gone there thirsty, hoping that a spring has broken loose and water waves like oat fields in the breeze. He waits for the great spring flood. When it comes for the first time, he sees, more than in dreams, water suspending corn stalks from the trees like rotting fruit and every field flowing with the flood. When the plains emerge, he finds the pond brimming with fresh, dark water, and near the shore, a delicate and torn yellow dress the flood has brought from somewhere. He watches it move on waves, wanting to reach and take it, but sees it live for water, moving with the form of a lovely girl swimming. He has never learned to swim, but he leaves his clothes floating with hers on the water, where their sleeves reach to touch like friendly fish or ducks. He returns to the fields through the briars, steps naked into the pasture where he cannot find the yellow girl nor imagine the fields where she lives. Well, poets, I was pretty obviously a, a quite self-conscious maybe poet. I certainly, you know, with when days are long with dust and sun, even slipping in some exact iambic lines. Uh, getting the near rhymes with loose and breeze and having the internal rhymes when it comes for the first time he sees and a little later from the trees, you know, all of that, fields flowing with the flood, all of the very poetic self-consciously, I shouldn't say self-consciously poetic, all the richly poetic <laughs> techniques uh, that, I, that I use along the way. And, and then uh, some years later I started writing uh, the boy tales, as they are sometimes called, and I just started writing. And notice how utterly different it is immediately. When the drainage tile was put in, put in, you know, kind of ordinary talk, put in the bottomlands, corn could be planted where only slough grass grew before, but tile drained the pond too. The boys, ha-ha, more than one now, we have that cluster of boys that appear in those stories over and over again, not a boy, but it's the boys. Couldn't remember where, when, when ducks and bullheads swam there, but the pond was still surrounded by willow trees and made a good place to get away from everything. They'd go down to the pond and look for old bottles and badger holes, or they'd make dust castles out of the pond bed. Then one year, there was a big flood, and the pond came back in spite of the drainage tile. When the waters went down, the boys walked to the pond to see what it looked like with water in it, they brought fishing poles, figuring that wherever there was water, there would also be fish. Corn stalks and trash from all over the county hung in the willow trees, 
and the pond was brimming with muddy water. Remember in the poem, it's dark, you know, poetic dark water. They fished for an hour and now and then saw ripples in the water that told them something alive was in there, but they couldn't tell what. Then one of the boys hooked something. It didn't fight much, but it was big enough to bend his pole like a horseshoe. The boy managed to pull it slowly towards the shore. They were expecting a big mud turtle, and they had their sticks ready. Then part of the catch showed itself on the surface, a large rolling motion like a big fish turning over on its back as it swam. I saw its yellow belly, shouted one of the boys. It's a giant catfish. Aha, dialogue comes out in the story version. Well, at least one line. But it wasn't a catfish. It wasn't anything alive at all. It was a dirty dress the flood had brought from somewhere. The boys took it off the hook and laid it out on the shore. It was a girl's dress. When they squeezed the water out, they could see that it was yellow with small red flowers. It had two pockets and white buttons at the neck. The boys fastened the buttons and checked the pockets. They were empty. The dress lay on the shore and the breeze started to dry it. The colors became clearer and brighter as it dried and the hen ruffled a little in the breeze. As a joke, one of the boys drew a head over the dress. The other boys joined in, scratching legs and arms in the soft dirt. There, one of them said, there's our yellow girl. The boys left her lying there, knowing there was a little chance that such a flood as the last one could come and wash wash her away. They went down to the pond often that summer, always saying they were going fishing, and they did catch a few small bullheads. The yellow girl stayed in place through the summer, and when the weather changed her at all, the boys fixed her up again by retracing her head, arms, and legs in the dirt. They came to think of her as their sleeping beauty, though nobody stooped to kiss her. I'm not going to do which, which one do you prefer, but <laughs> um, it's interesting that, that that first came out as, as a poem um, when I uh, had been away from the actual inspiration of that image of the dress along the Iowa River. I think the romantic language and sentiments of the poem version were aligned with the soul sadness I had at the time, which had a lot to do with the Vietnam War, that I had gotten student deferments all the way through my graduate school here, and then went to teach and started having young men my age come all shot to hell from Vietnam. I can even remember um, helping dress. There was a guy who, who was in my class six weeks after he'd gotten shot through his half of his leg by a sniper. I can remember, you know, helping him dress, dress that, uh, that wound. Well, that kind of experience really does turn one inward. And so uh, I started writing poems and stories, uh, mostly poems at that time. And I think the romantic language and sentiments were aligned with the soul sadness I had at the time. But I also think of what my mentor, William Stafford, once said about the way language, once it starts going, has its own way of inventing what follows. Um, I listened to an interview of Richard Hugo of William Stafford in which uh, Hugo spotted the line in Stafford slung in their cynical constellations 
And Hugo said, that shows, you know, that's your really, your dark side, Bill. And Stafford said, no, that's really the magic of the language because cynical came so handy between slung and constellations. So I make that point, who knows exactly when you are, uh, your, your, sen your sentiments are in control and when the language uh, aligns with the sentiments and even perhaps changes them. I do remember following the language and sentiments in the poem as it invented itself down the page. page. The process was a dance between my inner life and the life of the language on the page as it, as it evolved and suggested where to go in its rhythms, in its imagery, even in its sentiments. Um, I actually rewrote the, 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 boy, the boy's version in prose uh, without, without really going back to the poem. Um, I didn't plan the different results. I think both versions are romantic in sentiment, but the language and tone are so different. It may have been Horace Walpole who said, for the thinking person, life is a comedy. For the feeling person, life is a tragedy. I'm not sure if I was moving from the heart and the dark feelings during the Vietnam War when I wrote the first version towards the more liberated feeling uh, many years later, moving from mind to body, but the form invited a new way of dealing with the same image. Did the, the change in my own sensibilities or the change in form transform the material? I think it was a cooperation. Um, I won't spend that much time on the great strength, but let's look at it. See my daddy coming out again in the first line? <laughs> or in the next line? Or in the ninth line? Those who bulged from their shirts like straw from tightly tied bales, who won fist fights at the fair, caught the grease pig, wrestled a steer, were strong men of the plains. But the great strength was private, known only to old farmers who could see the power hidden in the face of a peddler or farmhand in the strangely shaped body, pinched shoulders and spreading hips, bent over like hybrid grain in the wind, when the fields had been cleared, when the last hay was stacked, the last fence fixed, when the cellar was sealed for winter, always there was the accident. And he would be there with jackknife or pliers or bare hands, his strength coming out from all its secret parts. For a moment we knew a wagon set upright, a hand pulled free from moving gears. It was all in the wrists or the legs or the eyes. Afterwards, there was no excitement at all, and only a few saw him fade back to his body. The notice in the, in the poetry version, it's a we, and then when I get to the prose version, we have the plural boys. Uh, you know, we get this kind of matter of fact. There were many strong men in the neighborhood, ones who showed up at county fairs and wrestled a steer or went into the ring with a circus wrestler and threw him out in 10 seconds. There were men who came to the sales barn every Saturday and took bets on what they could lift, usually a young steer or in one of the pens. Men who took on any two men in tug of war. Everyone knew who the strong men were and who to bet on. But then there was the man nobody noticed who never tried showing off in front of people. He was the one with the great strength. How could you tell anyone tell who had the great strength? You couldn't, not until there was an accident. Then he'd be there like the one good spring that never goes dry in a dry year. 
Just when you needed him, he'd be there, not even smiling, just doing what had to be done, pulling a hand free from moving gears, lifting a wagon off somebody's leg, pulling a hog from a well, wherever, whatever had to be done. The boys saw the great strength once, late August when everything was quiet, all the oats harvested, all the straw stacked, farmers in town visiting. And here the storytelling impulse led me to a crisis situation, like the story needed something here. It needed any, an event, very unlike the poem. An old church. How did the church get in here? It just came. It was being torn down. No, no coincidence if you've read all my work. <laughs> An old church was being torn down, and people were standing around watching. The caterpillar was pushing big pieces out of its side. All of a sudden, the wind caught a, big pe a piece of loose roof and lifted it off the church. It went wobbling through the air like a huge, sick bird, then landed on one end and tipped over on a bunch of people. Some people have read a whole allegory into this about what the church does to people. <laughs> when all you could hear was everyone screaming, the roof started rising slowly as if the wind had caught it again. It wasn't the wind. It was the great strength in old overalls, lifting the big section of roof. All of those trapped people were crawling out, scratched and bleeding. Afterwards, everybody was looking out for the people who got hurt under the roof. And after a little while, no one knew for sure where the great strength had gone. He was like the wind in this way, too. Curious, how many of you prefer the story version? It looks like it's about half and half. Oh, what it, I'm not sure what to learn from that. Well, here's a quick review of what I set out to say today. Obsessions align with the major things of our lives. I'm encouraging you to honor those obsessions and maybe, just maybe experience the pleasure I have experienced when I've explored some of those themes in different forms. I'm sure some of you, like Alice Siebold, have turned to writing as a way of dealing with trauma or pain. I'm reminded of a high school student who, when I asked her why she wrote, she said, and she was very quotable, I write as a dam against insanity. I hope she's still writing, that she's healing herself with her writing the way Alice Siebold did. The centenarians I interviewed taught me that by returning to the same story over and over, each retelling has a re was a revision that enriched the material. I just wrote this this morning. I realized this morning as I was thinking about this 11th hour that I didn't really want to lecture you in any traditional way. I didn't really want to tell you what you should do. Mostly, I just wanted to share with you how much fun it was to rewrite The Yellow Girl and The Great Strength. You know the great rush you can have in, in, in writing something the, the first time? I had that same rush when I went back and, and worked with the same material. Maybe, just maybe, you might be able to have the same kind of fun by exploring your own material in alternative forms. And by the way, I gave a version of this talk to a group about 10 years ago. I liked what I had to say today more than I said back then. And hey, if someone asks me to give this talk again, I won't say, been there, done that. I'll come up with a different version. And no doubt, the next version will be better than this one. Thank you. I'm open for questions and accusations.
Just a quick question. Sure. Um, how, what was the space of time between writing the poem and then writing the prose form? All right, I'm going to calculate that very quickly. It would be the difference between 19, let's see. Could you call your prose versions prose poems? They're very poetic. She asked me if I could, would call the prose versions prose poems. You know, that, that lingo of labeling various brands of lyrical prose, flash fiction, that, that, that is such a, a silly scramble. I've, I've, I've seen people who are so sure that a prose poem should be defined one way and that a short short should be defined another, that short short means there has to be a narrative structure. When I would send these off to magazines, the boy stories, sometimes they were published in the poetry section and sometimes in the fiction section. Uh, my first editor was Scott Walker at Grey Wolf Press, said, let's just call them tales. But yeah, the, the, the battle over definition, you know, flash fiction and prose poems are experimental forms, and if you look so at some of the collections that Norton has done, you'll see all kinds of things mixed together, including things like, um, know, like collages of, of images and list, you know, we've done list poems, there will be list short short. So it's such a scramble of definitions and uh, I think it's our job to keep the confusion going. <laughs> I have two questions for you. The first one is, is, where can you find a decent motel in Louisiana for $18 a night? Oh, this was nine, where can you find a decent motel in, in Louisiana for $18 a night? Oh, man, you're bringing back memories. I feel like a centenarian, right? And if I start talking about <laughs> some of the experiences of staying in motels in rural Louisiana, one of the great things about doing that book, we had no idea where we were going. We'd go, we'd go to retirement centers that truly, truly were out in the boonies. But that would have been like in 1988. Okay. And... Uh, I, I'll never forget Paul Boyer, my, my friend and photographer. You know, we found this motel, $18 a night. There was that much room between the two beds, the <laughs> two single beds, and there was a window over a bog. And, and the sounds coming out of the bog, the, the music, the music of, of the tadpoles or whatever the sound was. Um, it, 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 it smelled bad, it was hotter than hell, it didn't cost much. <laughs> My second question is, is it, uh, and you brought something home for me, it seems like all really good fiction is, is based on memoir rather than formulaic writing. Seems that all good fiction is based on kind of memoir rather than formulaic writing. Well, you know, I bet if there were some millionaire millionaire writers in this group, they'd say, oh, let's not put down formula. <laughs> I, I, I teach with someone, maybe some of you have read her work, uh, Jacqueline Michard, uh, The Deep End of the Ocean. It was uh, Oprah's first pick of fiction, uh, the morning after Oprah broadcast that interviewed uh, Jacqueline Michard. There was a waiting line of 4,000 at the New York uh, Public R Library for the deep end of the ocean, Jacqueline Michard. And when I, when I, when I, when I teach, teen teach with Jacqueline Michard, 
I'm the person who's noticing the, the diction. I'm the person who's noticing nuances of character development. And she is plot, 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 plot. And, you know, is plotting formulaic? Was Chekhov formulaic? Uh, in a sense, he was. You know, the formula for a Chekhov story is pretty simple. Have a character with exaggerated qualities which will not work in the situation where you put that character. So you have the man in the case who is this totally contained, puts everything inside things. You know, what is he, a Latin teacher or something like that? You get the image. And then where, where would he not work? Where would those qualities not work? Have him fall madly in love. You know, oh, things break apart and they don't work. So I don't know. Um, I sometimes think we literary writers we probably could learn something from the formulaic writers. That's it. All right, let's go have a cup of coffee and have lunch. Thanks.